Good morning and welcome again to InTown Church. We're so glad that you've joined us uh, for worship. And uh, if you're new here visiting with us, we're, you're our special guest as well. And we are going through a study of the Gospel of Luke. And we've come to Luke chapter 20. And this is our Gospel reading. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others." All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know all of the hurts that exist in this group of people, but I know a lot of them. I don't know all of the questions and concerns and doubts that they have about you, but I know a number of them. And Lord, I don't know all of the fears and worries and anxieties, but I hear and talk about a lot of them. Father, some of us are walking towards you as best we can. Others are not so sure that we can walk towards you at all anymore. We're not sure that we can believe anymore. Others of us can hardly get out of the house. We're so snowed in by guilt and shame and grief and depression. Father, wherever we find ourselves this morning, I pray that you would find your way into our story more deeply, that you would find your way into our hearts and minds and affections so that we can walk towards you. I pray that we would walk towards you just as in the way that you have walked towards us in the gospel, intentionally and with our whole hearts. But Father, we need your strength, we need your grace, we need your care in order to do that, for we cannot do it on our own. I pray that as we go through this passage, this would be one small step for all of us towards you, because you are taking a step towards us as we read and as we examine this text. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would inhabit these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever someone succeed someone else who's been very successful, whether it's at a job or an art form or a craft or a position or even just in a family. We have this strange relationship with that person. We have these extraordinarily high expectations of what they should be able to do, but we almost inevitably expect them to not be able to fulfill them. We expect them to fail. Who here saw The Phantom Menace in 1999? I stood in line the very first day, and I was expecting to relive this phenomenal experience that I had had in my childhood, only to realize that it could never live up to those expectations, and it wasn't 
a very good film. <laughs> who knows who Jacob Dylan is? Well, he's the lead singer of The Wallflowers. You may have heard of him. He sold millions of records, but whose son is he? Bob Dylan's. And so we have this expectation that he should be extraordinarily successful. And yet when he does have success, we, he doesn't quite live up to what our expectations were. And we almost know that he must fail in some way, even in his success. Other successors of great leaders, such as Tim Cook at Apple, how can he ever live up to the expectations that we have of him, the successor of Steve Jobs? And yet at the same time, we sort of expect him to fail or only succeed to certain, a certain level of degree. Now, we have a line of succession in this passage, and it's Jesus following David, the greatest king in all of Israel. He ascended to the throne and made Israel one of the greatest powers in the Near East at that time. And Jesus claims to be the Messiah, his successor, his son. And he claims to be greater in every way. And that was the expectation of the Messiah. That's the expectation that, we, that they put on Jesus, that he had to in some way be David's son, and yet at the same way exceed him in every way. How could Jesus fulfill that? What do we say about people that have to follow great leaders or great parents? We say they have big shoes to fill. Now in this passage, we see sort of three different sections. We see David's son, Jesus claiming to be David's son. And then we see a group of individuals, the teachers of the law, who don't get the type of son, the type of Messiah, the type of king that Jesus is. And we see a show of religion. And then in the last section, we see the widow making a great sacrifice. So we're going to look at David's son. We're going to look at a son, a show, and a sacrifice. Now, Jesus here has been has go, gone on the offensive throughout all of chapter 20 we've seen the teachers of the law and the sadducees trying to trap him they give him these riddles they give him these puzzles trying to box him in trying to bifurcate his answer in a way that whatever he says he's going to fail whatever he says they can trap him and then kill him and they've been on the offensive and Jesus has been on the defensive but here the tables turn and Jesus says i have a question for you. And to us, it's a fairly strange question. It's a little bit abstract and certainly quite ancient. But he's surrounded by people who don't believe in him. He's surrounded by skeptics. And what kind of argument does he put forth? This is his argument. David himself, King David, calls Jesus Lord. That's the argument. Not a list of proofs, not a bunch of proof text or intellectual arguments, but he just says, David, your king calls me Lord. Is he going to be the worthy sequel to David? Will he be the successor that meets expectation? Will he be big enough to fill the shoes of King David? Well, someone else who has wrestled with this is Bono, the lead singer of U2, sometimes criticized as having a bit of a Messiah complex himself. But he is a Christian, and he was interviewed about this idea of Jesus as the Messiah, and it sort of set it up as, well, isn't this sort of far-fetched, Bono, that Jesus is actually the king of the world? And he says, the response to the Christ story always goes something like this. He was a great prophet, 
obviously a very interesting guy, and he had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you to say only that. He says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, 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 please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take, but don't mention the M word because you know we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from all these creeps, but actually I am the Messiah. So Bono says, what you're left with is either Christ was who he says he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. But the idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. Now, the prophets that came before Jesus said that this Messiah would come to put all things right. He would be in the line of David, but would far exceed him. And how can you explain Psalm 110, Jesus says? You see, even in that context, they're trying to get a handle on Jesus. Is he really the Messiah, or is he just making all of this stuff up? But if he's making it up to this level, doesn't that make him something of a nutcase, something of a headcase, not to mention the hundreds and thousands of eyewitness followers that came after him. Are we to say that they were all nutcases at that level? The common understanding of the Messiah was that he would be sort of this powerful, exceptional human being in the line of David who would come and bring a restoration of Israel. He would be a warrior king that would exceed David's uh, status as a warrior king. But and like David, but he would restore the, the fortunes of Israel and the priestly class. But when Jesus comes, he doesn't do this at all. He's not a warrior king that throws out the Romans and throws out the foreigners. In fact, he goes straight to the temple and throws out the religious infrastructure that's keeping the foreigners out. He exceeds David, but in a completely different way, in a way that you wouldn't expect. He drives out Israel's religious leadership. It's not madness that explains his behavior. It's that he has a deeper, more nuanced, more biblical understanding of what it means to be a king. He's a king, but he's also a priest. In Psalm 110, if you were to continue reading, it says that this Messiah will be a priest according to the line of Melchizedek. Now, David there is drawing on the ancient history of Israel that we don't have time to go into, but when he mentions that, what he is saying is that this Messiah will supersede the priestly class. Everything that the priestly class was to do, that this Messiah will come and he will be the new and final high priest that will supersede the needs for all of the priestly class that they once had. He also has authority over the temple and the religious infrastructure because he's not merely David's son genealogically, he's David's Lord spiritually. He's a king, but also a priest. Why does David call him my Lord? If David was looking down the corridors of time and saw his successor becoming the Messiah, he wouldn't call him my, uh, he wouldn't, it's all one of his descendants, he would call him my son, not my Lord. He can only be, Jesus can only be David's Lord if he's God's son, if he is the true Messiah, both God incarnate as well as human. 
not only a human figure, but a divine figure, not to put down the enemies of Israel in a political sense, but the enemies of all humanity for all time, evil, sadness, sickness, death, all of that. That's what the Messiah is coming to eradicate once and for all. And the only way that that Messiah, that son of David can do it is if he's God's son, is if he is God incarnate. When he has a chance to make an argument, when he goes on the offensive and makes an apologetic, if you will, he doesn't give a list of proofs. Consider the evidence so that you can weigh it and rationally decide if you will believe me. Instead of a proof, he gives a person. Every one of us, every culture has its own epistemology, has its way of knowing, has its understanding of how something becomes valid knowledge. Every culture has one, and then every person within the culture has a little bit different shade of that. Some of us, many of us, have sort of rationalistic, modernistic epistemologies, which says, prove it to me. If I'm going to believe you, you must prove it to me in an airtight way, and then I will believe. Others of us have an epistemology that's more moral or ethical. It doesn't matter so much if you can prove it to me on a fact sheet. What I want to know is, is it good? Does it make the world a better place? I'm not convinced by miracles. I want to know if it's good. And the ways we determine whether something is credible and whether we believe it is our epistemology. It's what we come to encounter Jesus, encounter the Bible with. It's a filter. It's a way of seeing and understanding the world. What the Bible says and what Jesus is hinting at is he gives his apologetic, as he gives, goes on the offense, as he explains himself, is that our epistemology, the most critical one, is not about proof, but it's about control. It's about maintaining the lordship of our own lives. And until we give that up, until we see that filter and deal with that filter, they will never see Jesus for who he really is. We'll always try and shoehorn him into our agenda, just like the priestly class in Israel was trying to do. What he's saying, friends, by not giving proofs, by not giving this long list of a fact sheet, he's saying that he himself is the argument. The person of Jesus is the epistemological starting point. It's a bold, audacious claim. In our scientific and our rationalistic post-enlightenment age, we are apt to ask for proof. Lay out your thesis, and if I give it credibility, and if it's credible enough to me, then I'll believe it if it's unassailable. And, and friends, hear me. It's important to examine the evidence. And I'm confident if you examine the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, the eyewitness accounts of his resurrection, then there's plenty there to believe. It's not airtight, it's not unassailable, but it is very credible. And it's important to deal with those things. But if he were to give us a so-called airtight argument for Christianity and for his messiahship, for his resurrection, it would only be airtight in one culture with one epistemological starting point. What he says instead is, for all time, here's the argument. It's not a proof, it's a person. It's the person of Jesus. And if you here this morning are curious, if you're questioning, if you're skeptical, if you have a lot of concerns about Jesus, examine the evidence. There's plenty of resources that I can lend to you. I can have conversation with you about that. But the real issue 
of coming and encountering Jesus is seeing him in his person. What was he like? What did he give his time to? What sort of people did he affiliate with? Who was he? That's what Jesus is saying is that I am the son of David. That's the starting point. I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. That is the starting point. That's the argument. Deal with Jesus in those terms. He claims to be the son of David, but he also claims to be David's Lord, far exceeding and transcending anything that anyone could have expected of the Messiah. He says he is the fulfillment and the culmination of everything that the prophets pointed to. Read on your own. See Jesus in the Gospels. Or better yet, read along with someone else. Read in one of our community groups and come to hear and see Jesus in the Gospels as the eyewitnesses saw him and then decide. We see David. We see Jesus as a son of David. We also see a show of religion. John Stott, who was a British pastor that died just a few years ago, had world-renowned, very insightful preacher. And he wrote a small book called Christ the Controversialist uh, that's now out of print. But what he says is that throughout the Gospels and even here, what we see Jesus doing is, and as we saw last week, is opposing two of the classic human poles of, hum, uh, poles of human thought. Last week, we saw that he sets himself up against the Sadducees, sort of the slightly uh, liberal, secular-leaning group of religious authorities, those who have a problem with his supernaturalism and with his exclusivism. On the other hand, we see him constantly having conflict with the Pharisees, the religious conservatives, those who are drawing very tight boundaries about what it meant to be right and wrong and very high fences regarding who was in and who was out. And what do we expect of a religious leader? We sort of expect that he's going or she's going to gravitate towards the religious conservatives and affirm them because they are leading a moral life. But that's not what he does. But he also doesn't just go to the other side and affirm those who say there's no supernatural, there's no exclusivity, there's no ultimate truth. And he doesn't split the distance. He doesn't just find the middle ground, but does something entirely different. He doesn't validate the categories that he's given. One of the parties denied the supernatural. One of them denied grace. But Jesus says there is supernatural. There is ultimate truth, but there's also tender mercy. There's also grace. The moral commitments of God, the high moral commitments of God are fulfilled by the loving sacrifice of God on behalf of his people. You see, what Jesus does is he embraces the moral obligations and yet embraces those who break them. He affirms God's hatred towards sin and yet offers grace and mercy to the worst sinner. It's unlike anything that we've seen before. It's unique in world religions, in human philosophy. It's very unique. It transcends the categories that we normal, normally use, this polar binary thinking. Now, of course, the church has tended to gravitate more towards one, to preach and talk and teach as if the problem with the world is fully secular, that the dangers primarily for Christian people is overexposure to worldly or pagan values. To the church, it's tended to see the secular and the religious as if they're opposites. But Jesus says they're both wrong. 
They're both approaches to God that miss the point. When you encounter Jesus, it's not that you go from being irreligious to religious. It's that you realize that your reason for your irreligion, your running from God, as well as your religion, are both means of avoiding him and setting yourself up as the master and Lord of your own life. You see, they're both ways to avoid God, and you can fall off the horse on both sides, not one side. We're seeking to keep control of our own life through our self-determination as well as our religious self-denial, through our self-rule and saying, I don't believe you, I'm running away from you, or our diligent religiosity. They look different, but they're at the very foundation. They're exactly the same. And what both of us need to do, whether we're coming from irreligion or religion or sort of a hybrid, is we need to say, Jesus, you alone You only, by your grace and mercy, can I hope to stand before a God who is pure and holy, and it is nothing that I could ever do to earn your affection and your approval of me. But what I look at is not my own record. I look at what Jesus has done in my place, and I claim that. And I say, because of that, your holy wrath has been satisfied. But I don't then just become a religious person to try and keep myself in your good graces because that was one of the problems to begin with. I have to constantly go back to the gospel, constantly go back to what Jesus says is true of me and not what my works and my own thoughts would say. Jesus observes a temple service. He sees these religious people, these moral people, seem to be having an adventure in missing the point. That the people that were supposed to be there to guide Israel into the presence of God are doing exactly the opposite. And the scribes, the teachers of the law, have begun to measure their value not by what Messiah is going to do, not by what God has done for them in the past, but by the length of their robes, by getting flattering greetings in public, by occupying places of honor at worship or at dinner. In public, these were very respectable, very moral people, and the community was better for having them around because they cared for the community in some ways. But in private, they were using their power and their authority to exploit widows, the most vulnerable people in the community. Their religion was a sham. It was a show, and God sees it. We see them measuring themselves by the length of their robes, the length of their prayers. But there's another time in this passage where a length or a measurement, a scale of measurement comes to play, and it works exactly the opposite way. You see this poor widow comes and gives all she had and gives more than the rich people who gave what they could easily afford. And that's what we need to end with. We looked at a son and a show, and now the widow's sacrifice. This passage has been often used for sermons on giving as, this, as if this is the model for giving. And in some ways, the heart that lies at the basis of this giving is. But Jesus is not interested in taking people who are on the very margins of life, who are impoverished already, and asking them to further impoverish themselves. The point of the story is not the actual gift. It's the heart behind it. The point of the story is to contrast the devotion of this woman versus the religious scribes and Pharisees. Why is this story here? Why does it come where it does? As Jesus goes on the offensive and gives an argument, gives an apologetic for who he is, why then this story? Why does he shoehorn this thing on giving into this particular passage? It's 
heartwarming, but how does it fit with the primary thrust? And what we see is that the widow is exactly the type of proof that Jesus is. Jesus is giving the person of himself as proof, and then he offers us this widow. Is Jesus the Christ? He doesn't give us lengthy rational proofs or airtight logical arguments, but he gives us a person. In fact, he gives us two people. We're going to look at the widow. Widows were the poorest of the poor. Her gift is, is the smallest, but her sacrifice was the greatest because she gave everything. Now, our English translations don't really capture what's behind this because it doesn't just say that she gave pennies, but she puts in her bios. She puts in her life. When she gives away these two copper coins, she is putting away, she is giving away her life. She is giving up whatever little marginal control, idea of control that she had of her life. Those two pennies represented food, at least for that day, and she's giving it away. It's not just that she's giving money, it's that she's giving away her bios, her life. In 1985, Steve Jobs was fired from Apple Computer. He had helped to start the company and was one of the primary founders, but the board didn't want him around anymore, and it would be 12 years before they asked him to come back and please save us. Around the board, you had all of these competing interests, these competing chairs, but one of the things that they agreed upon was that Steve Jobs needed to be removed. You and I often think about ourselves as sort of this integrated whole, that we're whole persons with one will, with one unified person at the helm, but we're often a cluster of competing desires, of competing interests, and we're trying to evaluate them and weigh them and allow one to rule out. It's like we have a big boardroom in our heart, and in our heart there's this big table, it's got a lot of leather chairs around it, and the coffee's there, and the water bottles are there, and the whiteboard's there, and inside our heart all of these different chairs, these different voices are having a conversation and a debate, and they're trying to win out. Our social self, our sexual self, our recreational self, our physical self, our religious self are having an argument, and which one is going to win out? Who's going to be at the head of the table? Now, this kind of person can receive Jesus in one of two ways. One is we can invite him onto the committee. We can say, look, Jesus, over here around this table in my heart, I have this big comfy chair for you, and I would love for you to sit down and kind of be a part of the conversation. I'd like you to weigh in on some critical things and decisions that I'm facing in my life. I really want you to be a part of that conversation. And we give him a vote, but we've brought him into our system. We've given, given him a seat at our table. But there's another way, and it's the way of the gospel. It's the way that Jesus is presenting himself and asking to be in your life. When Apple invited Steve Jobs back in 1997, it wasn't just to have a seat at the table. It wasn't just as a consultant, and certainly some personalities and conflicts and some things had to solidify when they brought him back on board, but pretty soon it was pretty clear who was running Apple Computer and who ran it up until his death. It was one person. It was Steve Jobs. He wasn't a consultant. He wasn't just one seat, but he was identified with Apple Computer. Its success fell, rose or fell on him not to trivialize Jesus' role in this way or in that way, but if we understand what Jesus is saying rightly, 
We're sitting at the board table and we're saying to Jesus, Jesus, my stock is tanking. I'm on the verge of bankruptcy. Morally, spiritually, physically, I am bankrupt. Would you please come in and fire my committee? Fire everyone at this table. I'm not just going to give you one comfy chair, but you take over the table. You are now the board. You are now in charge of my life. Fire them. Everyone, every last one of them, fire me. You are now in control. When rich people, like many of us are, give, we give out of our margins. When we give, we aren't eating any less. We aren't dressing any poorer. We aren't traveling any any less. We normally give out of our margin. We give what's left over, and we give money. This woman puts in her life. She puts her life in jeopardy because she sees who Jesus really is, that he is the son of David, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Lord and King of the universe. And so, of course, I give you not just my two pennies, but I give you my bios. I give you my life. Why here? Why does this story fit here? It fits in the same way that Jesus giving his life as a proof. Because what Jesus knows is that our deepest problems are not intellectual. They're about authority and control. We're afraid to trust. We're afraid to put our lives in someone else's hands, even God's. Soren Kierkegaard says, people try to persuade us that the objections against Christianity spring from doubt. The objections against Christianity spring from insubordination, the dislike of obedience, rebellion against all authority. And as a result, people have hitherto been beating the air in the struggle against objections because they have fought intellectually with doubt instead of fighting morally with rebellion. You see, our objections oftentimes are can'ts. I can't believe mixed with or overruled with I won't believe. It's not just can't, it's won't. I won't believe because I see the implications. And what I see is that Jesus is not just a seat at the table. He is the CEO. He is the person in charge. Again, not to trivialize, but to help bring this home to what we're talking about. So why is this story here? Because it's a story not of intellectual wrestle, but it's a story of spiritual bravery. It's a story of courage. It's a story of a hero who gives up her life to Jesus. I want you to know as we close that maybe you've been living in the shadow of a successful peer or a successful parent, and you've been trying your whole life to live up to those expectations. Maybe you've been successful, and yet you still feel something like a failure because of all the advantages you've been given. Maybe you've been living under the crushing expectations that you've put on yourself, You have really big shoes to fill. Maybe you've been dealing with doubt or depression or discouragement or a disability, and it's an act of absolute valor and courage just to get out of the door in the morning and assemble yourselves for worship. And I want you to know that you're my hero. But, friends, Jesus sees as well. He sees your expectations and the crushing weight that you put on yourself, and he wants to relieve that. He sees all of the ways that you've been hurt by the expectations that have been placed upon you. Maybe you've 
succeeded, but you still feel like a failure. He sees. He sees your depression. He sees your disability. He sees your discouragement. He sees, and he wants to relieve you. He wants to come in, but you have to let him in, not as a seat at the table, but you have to let him in as Lord, as Messiah. Whether you do something great in the eyes of the world or you just get out of the bed and put one foot forward, it's not the length of your robe, it's not the length of your prayers, it's not the amount of your gift that matters. It's that you have said, Jesus, come in and take over. I am a bankrupt person. And then Jesus says, of course, I will give you my record and you can stand forever with God. That's the gospel. It's not about the length of our prayers, of our devotion. It's that we say, oftentimes, the reason for my devotion is to hide from God, and I don't want to hide anymore. I'm done. Jesus, take me as I am. That's the invitation. Let's pray now. Father, I pray that you would enable us to stop hiding. You would enable us to step outside of the expectations that ourselves or others have placed upon us and see that your expectations, the highest in all the world, have been met and fulfilled in Jesus. And I pray that that would give us a reason to get out of bed, a reason to put one foot in front of the other, a reason to do great things for you and yet not revel in what that says about ourselves, but revel in the fact that you get glory. Father, I pray that this church would be a place that does exactly that, that we would do great things for you, never being self-referential, but looking to give you glory in all things. We pray as we come to the table that you would begin to solidify that work that you've done in our hearts if we are Christians, that you would make it new, that you would make it real. And Father, if we're still wrestling with doubt, if we're wrestling with fear of what it might look like to believe, I pray that you would meet us there as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.